0: In this episode, I speak with Dan Fendel, a death doula, a spiritual care volunteer, and an active member of the Jewish community teaching about Jewish end-of-life practices. Welcome to the Beside Project, an exploration of where the end of life and Judaism intersect. My name is Sarit, and I'm out to uncover what wisdom and rituals Judaism provides for the dying for the people caring for the dying, and for what comes next. This is a podcast where we'll learn from the stories of those most closely connected to the end-of-life journey. Dan Fandel and I connected about a month ago through his work on the Mileveh Project, a volunteer group of Jewish death doulas based in the Berkeley, Oakland area of California. Mileveh translates to one who accompanies, and the group doesn't really use the term death doula when describing themselves but I learned about the Malavet Project by looking up Jewish death Doula online. After we spoke once, I realized I wanted to hear more. So I asked Dan if we could record a conversation where we would dive deeper into his work in spiritual care and the Malavet Project. Dan agreed, and now I get to share a little bit more about his journey with you. In our conversation, Dan uses some Hebrew words and phrases that you can find translated in the episode description, or if you're listening on the blog, you can find them below. Now to the story. We started by talking about how Dan began his path in and around end-of-life work.
1: So I I would say that I started this piece of my life journey as an anticipating mourner. That is, when my late wife was sick and got help as really for me, not so much for her, uh, from an organization locally that helped me kind of Go through that, and uh, in the aftermath of that being seen by my friends and neighbors as somebody who knew something about end of life, and you know, people would come to me and say, you know, my sister just died. What do I do? Or here's how I'm feeling. That kind of thing. And and I for for 20 years, from the mid 80s to well, 2002 or so, um, was involved with a group that basically was a Bikur Cholim group. It comforted both the sick and the and mourners. Um, so it's a Nahama group, really, more, more generally, and not specifically Jewish. And then um, I got involved sort of from a from a specifically Jewish, and when I got involved with Kedisha.
0: early on in getting to know Dan, he mentioned his work as a spiritual care volunteer at a local hospital. And this was really the first time I'd ever heard of a position titled Spiritual Care Volunteer. And I think it came up not only because it's a deep part of who he is, but because it connects to the work of being a death doula in that it has a core function of listening. The people Dan visits are not people who are necessarily dying or approaching death, but they're people who are usually passing through the hospital for a medical procedure. I asked Dan if you could share a little bit more about what it means to be a spiritual care volunteer.
1: Well, what I have done at Kaiser is simply to walk into people's rooms, uh, unexpected, unannounced, uninvited. I have a, a, you know, 10 South is my, you know, my uh, territory. Uh, Introduce myself. I'm Dan Fandel. I'm a spiritual care volunteer. And how's your spirit? Um, and, uh, that elicits a a very wide range of responses from go away. I don't like religious people, which out of, you know, I don't know, a thousand people that I've seen this happen, maybe three or four times to what's maybe the most common single response is, thank you very much. I'm fine to, of course, have a seat and 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 from there it goes in in a lot of levels, but basically it's as is most nahama work listening, it's giving people openings to talk about what's going on with them, and they may or may not call that spiritual. it may simply be gee, I'm scared, I'm having you know surgery tomorrow, or uh boy, this has really caught me off guard, I don't know what's going on, and it's caused me to think or uh." You know, what do you think of the A's? You know, uh, you know, and it, it, it can be as light as that and as as heavy as as, you know, what do you believe about the afterlife?
0: I really love the question, how's your spirit? And every time I hear Dan ask that, I try to answer it for myself. I think it makes for a good self-soul check-in. From here we transition to learning more about the Malavet project. It's a young organization, as you'll hear. And sadly, COVID has interrupted their work. But from everyone I've talked to about it, there is hope that as we emerge from this pandemic, so too will the project.
1: So, Malaba, um, as I think you know, started about now maybe three years ago. And its goal was to kind of bridge a gap or fill a gap, at least at uh, Congregation Nativot Shalom, between Biker Cholim, visiting the sick. Uh, who are generally not, uh, you know, dying. Between that and what people saw as Havakadishu, which was taking care of the dead. So there's that, you know, shorter period, very unpredictable time when people are actively dying or, or very shortly before that. And there was a sense that there wasn't really a resource for, uh, for, for de- helping people at that point. Our goal is to provide spiritual support, specifically Jewish spiritual support, for people near the very end of their lives. Now, we've had people contact us, or sometimes it's a family member who does makes the initial contact. So, one of the people that I've worked with was a, a woman who had cancer, and her daughter contacted uh, Malaveh, and Herb and I, in general, we have a a pair of volunteers for each individual, not going together, but alternating, so that uh, at the very end we have at least two people who know the individual and you know can spell each other. If if there's like a you know a vigil kind of situation, and she was in a very stable situation, although she was dying. And the first time I met, I went went with her one time, and then I went for the first time by myself. And she said something like, um, "I'm in the waiting room." That was her her metaphor for you know her her status. And she didn't have a whole lot of energy, but she was she was happy to have visitors. She was happy to have somebody to talk to. She was not very overtly Jewish in her practice, but she'd come from a fairly traditional home. She had. Uh, you know, an an interesting life story too. And you know, and, and part of, of what we did together was for her to, you know, tell me about her life. You know, I saw so I saw her oh once or twice a month for about six months until, you know, one day I got a call that she had died from her daughter. And at that point I sort of somewhat switched modes and I met her daughter at the hospital and, and spent, you know, an hour or two with her, helping her deal with now what? So that's, that's what Milavaz is, and over the years, we've probably uh, supported uh, maybe a dozen or so individuals. I don't think, I may be wrong, I don't think we have ever been with them at the moment of death. And at the same time, although that's what we tell the family members who contact us or the individuals what we're there for, often at that point, the family members feel like they want to just... Be them. They have it under control, and they are extraordinarily appreciative of the support we've given them. And I think it helps them be ready for that moment, whatever it is we've done. But uh, we are have not had a uh, an occasion to do, you know, a a deathbed vigil, which is sort of I think how many of our volunteers initially picture what they're volunteering to do. Being there at 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 that moment, I have just once been with somebody at the moment of death. I think just once, and that was uh, my late mother-in-law. Um, we were in Dallas, and uh, you know she was dying, and and we were there were about four or five of us in the hospital at that time, and you know we were around the bedside when she took her last breath. I was not in the room when my wife died, I was downstairs, and I'm ever resentful that the nurses didn't call me and say, you know, come on up and be here for this last moment, but whatever, you know, that was their decision choice, I don't know how much, you know, warning they had, but, uh, you know, that's how it is, and, and, and we don't know.
0: Hmm. Dan's story tells us that being there for others at the end of life isn't something we can necessarily schedule. The unpredictability of death is also the unpredictability of life. And as uncomfortable as that sounds and feels, we have to sit with it. And this points to one of the ways about how hard this can all be. Us humans, we like having control. We work hard in many ways to maintain control. And it makes sense that not having any control can be really scary. I don't have an answer or a solution to that, but just recognizing for myself that even saying this is something I don't have control over helps me to begin to feel more comfortable. Okay, back to the conversation with Dan. So we got to talking a little bit about what makes a death doula a Jewish death doula And what I love about his answer is that, in short, it's being reasonably fluent with Jewish text, which you'll hear him say, and understanding Jewish beliefs about the afterlife. And then he immediately recognizes that there's no one way Jews believe. And I'm really into where he ends up going with this thought. Have a listen. Part of
1: the training we give volunteers, some of it is fairly generic. um, And some of it is specifically Jewish. So, you know, we want the volunteers to be comfortable and reasonably fluent with Jewish liturgy, with issues like Jewish beliefs about the afterlife, which are all over the place. And, um, you know, I would, my guess is that most Jews, you know, entertain, you know, about four or five different ideas of what they believe, you know, at given moments. And whatever it is you you might imagine Judaism teaches, it's there somewhere in the tradition, including contemporaries of Dante who wrote things very similar to, you know, Dante's Inferno with, you know, levels of hell and, and all of that kind of fire and brimstone stuff was was in the air, whether... They took it from Dante, or they all took it from a similar place, or whatever. I don't know the history enough of that, but it's all there. And I remember being at, at what was essentially a Shiva minion uh, for somebody, and somebody said, Well, Jews don't believe in. And I said, Stop right there. Anytime you start a sentence, Jews don't believe in, or Jews believe, you're in deep trouble because. You're going to be wrong for some segment of of the Jewish population, and you know I, I would say most contemporary Jews think that Jews don't believe in an afterlife. You know, unless they're brought up in a a more traditional framework, they tend to see that as something that Judaism has discarded, and much of Judaism has discarded it, but much has not. So one of the just just a little sort of an aside in the um, Elohai neshemashinatata bitahorahi, that the soul you have given me is pure. And the traditional version says, You created, you da 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 da. And then it says, You will in the future take it from me and restore it to me in the world to come. That is not in the Reform liturgy. Neither of those two phrases is in the Reform liturgy. Now, I get that from a Reform perspective, restore it to me in the world to come may not work but my thinking is if you start out this prayer saying god you gave me my soul if you are giving the divine credit so to speak for giving you a soul then you have to acknowledge the role of the divine in taking your soul so i'm you know it's a little you know, small campaign of mine to educate my fellow reformed jews about about that at least at least add and you will in the future take it from me you don't want to say you'll restore it to me in the world to come okay i'm i'm i i get that so i'm i'm part of a uh, a wise aging group it's a you know group of people in their mid 60s and on up and we often start our meetings with that and i said let's let's add this phrase in and people have, have embraced it because you know acknowledgement of death See, i i think it was taken out in part just as a death avoidal Avoidance uh, piece, but uh, as well as sort of a, a more so than a theological objection. so i'm I'm pushing to restore it.
0: You can't see this, but when Dan mentions death avoidance as being a factor in how the text was edited, I'm nodding enthusiastically and probably also gesticulating emphatically. As I dive more into this learning, it has become clear to me that Judaism does the moment of death and what comes after reasonably well in that we have rituals and traditions to help guide us. But dying? Not so much. There is in fact incredibly little from Jewish tradition about when someone's death is imminent. There is much more on this to come. Dan sharing about how this text was edited led me to want to know if there were any texts or rituals that Dan could share from his own life, things that he finds personal meaning in. The poem you're going to learn about, Dan had introduced as a ritual reading at his family's yearly reunions to hold space for those who are no longer with them. Take a listen.
1: It's hard to talk about it without uh, having the text in front of me, and and I don't know it by heart. But it it ends with something along the lines of, We will remember them for they are now a part of us. In times of trouble, we will remember them. In times of joy, we will remember them. When we have joys we yearn to share, we will remember them. And this took on special meaning for me. I was called at Kaiser to provide sort of a service, so to speak, for a family. uh, They had a member of the family who was dying for whom they were planning to. Disconnect uh, life support. And they wanted to do some kind of ritual before she died. And uh, I put some things together, and that reading was one of them. But we gathered around her bed and read it not as, We will remember them, but we will remember you. She was not conscious, visibly. Uh, You know, she as far as we could tell was not aware of what we were doing but it was a an extraordinarily powerful moment it, it's um, you know it's heart work it's I think what at the base of it what we all live for is those deep unconstrained connections with other people
0: with thanks to Dan Fendel for sharing about his story in the Melavette Project As a reminder, you can check out the podcast description for more about Dan, resources about things mentioned in this episode, as well as translations of Hebrew words and phrases that were used. Do you or someone you know have a story to share? Or are there topics you'd want to hear me cover? Reach out to me, Sarit, through the website besideproject.org. There you will also find written posts, resources, and explorations of where Judaism meets death and dying. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon.